while women who write take flight. As women who write, we recognize the importance of supporting one another because together we are stronger. Our goal is to provide this support through discussions about developing character, setting, plot, and dialogue. We will include interviews, panel discussions, and informal chats. Our team of Wild Women includes Gabby Anderson, author of South of Happily, a novel that started as a love letter to a lost parent and turned into a story about staying sane when life tries to shove us to the business end of a meat grinder. She is currently writing the second book in this series, North of Happily. Kim Connery, author of the sci-fi romance Stealing Aries and the memoir, You're Not a Murderer, You Just Have OCD. She also writes a blog to bring awareness to OCD at harmocdkimconnery.com. April Dilbeck, author of A Sacred Thing, a detective story about the theft of an African shaman's mask that leads the readers from the Congo to the elite world of New York art dealers and collectors. Elizabeth Jones, author of literary fiction and our resident MFA in creative writing. And Kathy Nichols, author of The Sometimes Sister, a psychological thriller that explores the bonds of sisterhood and life after loss. Our flight is organic and our journey is ongoing. We invite you to join us along the way. Tonight's guest is Martina Clark, who just this last fall had her book released, which is called My Unexpected Life, an international memoir of two pandemics, HIV and COVID. She's joining us from New York, and we're honored and glad to have her. Thank you. So you were introduced to us by your publisher, the Nor Hart of Northampton House who we interviewed not too long ago. We'll come back around to her because she is a big part of your journey with your book. But first, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your story, and then we can go more into how it became a memoir. So I'm guessing that when you first got a positive HIV test, you were not imagining how this would shape your life's work, that it would lead to a published book, and interviews, and traveling abroad, and being part of these large organizations. So it all must be truly unexpected in the extreme. Absolutely. I was 28 years old, and this was in 1992, before we had viable treatment. And also, my doctor told me I had probably a good five years to live. So I sort of thought I had nothing to lose. I launched myself into activism because I thought I had maybe five years to live. I definitely did not anticipate pretty much any of what has happened in my most unexpected life. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it didn't go from being at this low point of getting the diagnosis directly to this higher point now of becoming an author. Can you tell us some of that? development, how that all unfolded from then until now, just, you know, the highlights that feel memorable for you. There are so many, and it's sort of tricky to uh, collapse 30 years, but I would say, well, certainly one highlight is that there are 30 years to collapse, and that I've gone from 28 years old being told probably going to die soon, to being almost 58 years old and aging with HIV. That's a huge highlight. A lot of people don't like the idea of aging, but it is exciting for me. Other highlights would be just all of the amazing travel that I've gotten to do. 
because certainly when I was diagnosed, I thought that was something I would not be able to do for a variety of reasons. And other highlights that are probably not in the book, but becoming great Aunt Martina. I was already Aunt Martina, but now I'm great Aunt Martina because those nibblings have grown up and have kids of their own now. And that's pretty awesome. In keeping with that, I remember toward the end of your book, you have that really low point where you're feeling so bad and you feel like you failed somehow because you are going to have to get treatment to stay healthy. And I loved when you therapist, you were saying, asked you that question. And it's so wonderful that you said that because she asked you basically what you could think of that would make life worth living. And your answer was what you just said. Yeah. No, they, they definitely, at several points in my life, many, many points in my life, but particularly at that moment when I had to start treatment, which was like being diagnosed all over again, because I had been what we called a long-term non-progressor. I didn't have to start treatment for more than 15 years, which was very, very unusual. And that was how I felt I had somehow failed, which of course is nonsense. I hadn't failed. I was just lucky. But thinking about those children in my life gave me a reason to keep going and to decide that I was I would indeed start treatment and stay alive because I was very sick. Well, one of the things that was so striking to me was that your doctor, of course, doctors then did not know enough to be telling people what they were telling them and almost definitive telling telling you you have five years. But then I started thinking, you know, at what points in your life when he says five years and you hit the five-year mark, were you thinking, okay, how much time do I have? Do I have five more years? Do I need to be on the alert for this or that? Or were you able to kind of just immerse yourself in nobody really knows? I mean, do what I ha- do. What I do. Okay, that's a great question. There, there were sort of two things happening, I think, in parallel. And one is that there was sort of my personal check-ins and there were definitely like five-year check-ins, you know, okay, I made it five years and then I made it 10 years and then 15 years and then 20 and 25 and now 30, um, this year makes 30 years. But then there were also things that were happening in science that I could keep an eye on. And within the first five years, I was already very much entrenched in the world of HIV and AIDS and the scientific response and the global response. So in 1996, which was just a few years, four years after I was diagnosed, viable treatment became available. So at that point, I knew that if I did need to start treatment, there would be something available to me. And that likely I would never get to the point of developing AIDS because I would be able to intervene. So that sense was sort of like, I never felt like I was just going to die because there was no hope at all. But then I also sort of played a little bit of a mind game with myself because I never did get sick for so long that I thought I was never going to need treatment. And that's why when I did, I got sick so quickly that I had couldn't quite believe it was happening. I had convinced myself I was never going to need that treatment. It was a very bizarre experience. And partly it was harder for me to handle because I was so sick that, you know, when, when any body, physical body person is sick, your brain also is not functioning properly. And so I wasn't being rational and I was not thinking straight because I couldn't, none of, nothing was working in my body or my brain. I was not making good decisions because I was just falling apart and everything was starting to shut down. 
but luckily, because I had never been on treatment, I responded well and quickly, and I'm here to talk about it and to have written about it. We're so glad you are. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Yeah, so next maybe we can move from this diagnosis, the early days, to then when you committed yourself to activism. You know, when the specter of AIDS first showed up in the 80s, it was perceived as strictly a disease that hit gay males primarily. Women were really not seen as vulnerable until much later on, and I imagine this was a shock for you and everyone who knew you, and is that shock part of why you decided to become an activist. Absolutely. When I tested positive, I had never seen or known, to the best of my knowledge, a woman with HIV. And I lived in San Francisco at the time, which was one of the epicenters in this country. So it absolutely prompted me to get into uh, activism because I realized that while there were so many services for people with HIV, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco Bay Area, there were not women-centered services. And I quickly found one other woman who had started an organization called World, and I started volunteering and then working with her. And that led me to another organization called the International Community of Women Living with HIV, the ICW. And Piece by piece, I found other women around the world and realized that our voices were simply not being heard. We very much existed. And indeed, today, and probably throughout all of this, women account for more than half of the people living with HIV globally. We just don't hear about it. And in this country, men were much more vocal and by necessity in this country were doing all of the activism because they were they were dying and so quickly, but it made the perspective a little bit skewed and the services that were set up were also skewed. And there's still a lot of work to do to fix that, particularly in the United States, but also around the world. If we had been interviewing you last Thursday, we could have brought up that it was International Women and Girls with HIV, which I'm assuming was uh, folded into the International Day of the Woman or International Women's Day, however you want to say it. I am not currently as involved in activism as I once was, partly because I became really burnt out. And I also realized that at some point you need to step back and let other people step up because... I think in this country, I, and as your listeners can't see through the microphones, I am a white woman. It's important for me to speak out on behalf of women living with HIV, to be sure, but it is also important for me to step back and let other women speak up. And what I do now is try and talk about the issues more broadly for all women, and I do it through my writing, and I also do it through my teaching. I am now a writing professor, and I try and teach my students how important it is for them to find their own voice on the page as writers, and to understand that their voice matters, and also to explain that you know there is a history behind all of this stuff around HIV, and expose them a little bit to the issues, and that they're not over. They have not gone away, but there's still things to be learned and discussed and to learn from the past. So that's sort of where my activism falls. Well, I would like to encourage everyone who is a writer, 
that writing can be the most effective form of activism because of the broad, far reach that it has. We often think of activism as showing up with a sign outside of a public building. Yeah, it's just, we don't want to minimize what the writing of the book has done and the interviews that you've been giving that are published. So I don't think that you really have stepped back, but I appreciate that you are making space for others to step into. And I think that's really graceful. What you do in the book that I thought was very beautifully done, and I don't really know how you did it, is you managed to take your story you're very open and honest about your story, but you also include some of the most beautiful descriptions of the places that you went to, and you share with us the joy that you were able to have and the camaraderie with your colleagues that was just so wonderful. And I think that that's, I hope that that's something you're able to kind of convey to your students, how you can have a serious memoir, but it's not joyless. What kind of writing do you teach? your students? So I teach, I teach two classes primarily. And one is critical reading, and I have them read all sorts of things. And then I teach um, composition, English 101, which is the class that when you do an MFA, everybody's like, oh, no, I don't want to have to teach that, but I'm going to have to teach that. And then maybe I'll get to teach creative writing. Then I discovered that at least in where I teach, I get to choose the readings. And I love teaching this class because I teach them to write about current affairs. And I teach them that what will make their writing stand out when they're in college is finding those little moments of joy. Even if you're writing an essay about some political issue, you can find those little moments of joy And you can bring in sensory details, even in the most boring of subjects. And you can bring the writing to life. And that is what sets good writing apart from boring five-paragraph essays. (laughs) And and that's what brings the voice to an author's writing. And And I tell my students that my goal is by the end of the semester, I will be able to read their essays without knowing the name of the individual student and recognize who wrote which piece. That's my goal. I think that um, I take a lot of my own writing skills from travel writers. And I try and teach that to my composition students, which probably is not maybe what my English department was hoping that I do, but it works because I think this is what some of my readers have found is, as Pico Iyer says, you don't want the reader to feel like they want to go there. You want them to feel like they have already been there. It's the same with any kind of writing. You want your reader to feel like they're there with you on the page. That's what I have tried to do, and that's what I try and convey to all of my students. I taught high school seniors in um some of the advanced courses were very similar to that 101. And I feel like having students learn to be creative in a non-creative topic and to be open and honest, which brings me to uh, a more current question. I know in your work with trying to educate people about HIV and AIDS, there were so many personal unintentional attacks on you, actually, 
you know, that had to be terribly painful, but you remained open and honest. And your point often was, we'd be a lot better off if we could be honest with our children about their sexuality, uh, about life, real life. And so it must be, it's terribly painful to me. And I know it must be the same to you to hear what's going on in the schools now with what you can't say. And of course, that's the first thing that kids are going to want to hear when they know you can't say it. So does that affect your teaching or is it just something you observe? It does affect my teaching. And I'm sort of like those teenagers that just want to do it because you can't do it. For example, my semester started this week. We read a very short piece of flesh nonfiction today by Doug Lawson, which is called The Chicken Whisperer. And it is about a father talking about his transgender son. And we read it for a lot of different reasons. But I start with that piece because I want my students to know that it's okay to talk about that in class. It's a safe environment that I feel comfortable talking about it, that I want them to think about it. If they are not comfortable with it, I want them to think about it. And I just sort of want to set the tone a little bit for the semester. Uh, it is, happens to be a beautiful piece of writing as well. I think it's important that as, a, as an instructor, I bring that on day one. And if students are not comfortable with it, they can contact me and that's okay. They can say, I didn't really like that. And I can say, that's okay. You don't have to like it, but I, it's a part of our world. And I just want you to get a little bit more comfortable with it. Teaching kids to think and that it's okay to think and it's okay to question, not just okay, but it's essential and using literature. Do you use some excerpts from your own writing with your students? I do not, because personally, I think it is, it's not the right thing to do. That's just my feeling. Some of your uh, descriptions of the land, sky at night, and seeing those beautiful sprays of stars, <laughs> I think you'd be safe sharing that with them, and just talking about how, letting them know you can sprinkle those things in to a personal essay you know, if you're writing one or whatever. But I, I get what you're saying. I'd feel uncomfortable doing that too. But it is a the beauty of language, I think, is it's okay to share your version of it. And I, I think your students love it. But the, I'm sure I'm sure that you have more than enough in your curriculum <laughs> that you want to cover. So you don't need to worry about adding more to it. I also I loved there's a part in there where you are so patient with people. And I used to be patient with people, not as much anymore, but you are so patient with so many people. But I love the one, and I can't remember who the gentleman was. He was a diplomat, and he had been so resistant and really and pretty insulting. And I imagine it was condescending. But later, he gave you the money. You got some funding for it. And, but his quote was, oh, yes, Miss Clark, small but mean or short but mean. And I thought, I, I don't, I'm not very tall. I thought, I'd be okay with that description. How did you feel about that? <laughs> I was delighted, yes, because uh, that was one of those situations, just a, a little tiny spoiler alert. I was already working for the United Nations, and I was supporting non-governmental organizations, and I was having a discussion with between the non-governmental organization network in the country with the UN. They were trying to get funding for something, and one guy was just basically blocking it, and I got into a fight with him. 
And I told him that he was being completely out of line. And he was basically saying he could never support them because they were people with HIV and people with HIV were dirty and bad. And I called him out on it. And I said, well, does that make me dirty and bad? Because I'm a person with HIV and I have the same passport as you. And he got really, really pissed off. <laughs> and then uh, that was when like, he eventually went back and he signed a check and he did fund it. And then he told people, it's like, yeah, she's short, but she sure is mean. <laughs> And I was delighted. All of those moments when I could piss off other people that called them out on um, being jerks, I wore that with honor. Asking them to confront the situation with honesty and throw aside stereotypes. And exactly. And, and that particular guy was a jerk. He was just a jerk. And everybody knew he was a jerk. So he had a reputation long before I even got there. Other people that were just uninformed and or naive I was not always mean to people. I wasn't mean to every single person. <laughs> I tried to approach each situation as appropriate and say, yeah, I, I think it's really important because if you don't explain to people in their own sort of language what they're doing wrong, then they can't fix it. Do you feel that we have made progress? What kind of progress? I feel like we're making progress, but I'm never sure if it's enough. It's like in everything else that happens, you're like, I can't believe that person said that I thought no one ever thought that way anymore you know and it's it's can be so frustrating in terms of HIV I certainly feel like science has made the most progress society has made the least and I remember just in the past couple of months reading something about I think it was the governor of California had a meeting with Magic Johnson, maybe. I might have the other person wrong, but definitely some famous person had a meeting with Magic Johnson and maybe they didn't have masks on. And then some other politician said, oh, that person, now they're going to get AIDS. And I thought, oh my God, it's 2022. Wow, here we are. I also think about another famous actor, Billy Porter, came out last summer acknowledging that he's HIV positive, has been for 14 years. And, and I completely understand in many ways why he has not disclosed publicly. But at the same time, you're like, oh my gosh, here we are, you know, again, in a world where he couldn't disclose. That just hurt my heart, you know? We have not made as much progress as I think people would like to think we have. And still, again, that more than half of the people living with HIV in the world are women. Most people have no idea. They would not, if you ask them, they would not think that. They would think, oh, no, no, it's all gay men. That's not true. And people are still getting infected. And funding is being cut in many places. Funding for long-term survivors is being cut. There's not enough research for people who are aging with HIV because, and there should be because this is new. We don't really know what happens. Funding for women with HIV is not robust enough. There are so many things. And clearly we've just been through this horrific pandemic and funding has had to be funneled in other directions by necessity. But for example, I also had COVID because I'm a virus overachiever. There's not a lot of research on what those two things together mean. And it's new, you know, it's only two years in, but I'm still dealing with that. And yet we can find bazillions of dollars for more military equipment. And it's frustrating. So I would say we've made a lot of progress. Uh, we have not made enough. There's still more work to be done. And people are still becoming infected, newly infected. And that, that does not need to happen. I think you made a lot of parallels between the COVID pandemic and the AIDS epidemic and how people 
cling to denial. And once again, it's back to that open and honest exchange of information. But you also made a really good point that for people, especially early on, and even now, people who have AIDS, they still often feel more isolated. With the COVID situation, there was really no stigma to it as far as, you know, we realized pretty quickly anyone could get it. And yet the results were not all that different in some ways. What did you, you know, can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I think the jury's still out on that a little bit because it's still new. And definitely there is the difference that HIV seemed to be just in certain populations and it, and it also seemed to be kind of a slow ramp up, whereas COVID just hit the whole world all at once, boom, everybody, everywhere. But I would also say there was some stigma and, and oddly almost more stigma as it progressed. Like if you got it early on, it was just like you were just, that was just bad luck. If you got it now, either it's because you're, it's a political thing and you just weren't doing it right. Or somehow there's a little bit of shame in it. Like you did everything right, but you still got it. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's, there's still a little bit of weirdness around that, but I would venture to say still nothing compared to the HIV AIDS pandemic because it's not attached to sex. That's the bottom line. That's the main difference. Well, I think that one way to dispel some stigma is conversations like these. One of the things about someone with chronic illness is that we are not defined solely by that illness or how much we're involved in trying to find a cure or raising funds and everything that goes with that. Here we are on a podcast of writers interviewing other writers for listeners who are writers. It seems to me that during your whole experience, as you were developing your activism, you were also developing yourself as a writer and an educator. The two things were running right alongside each other, kind of bringing you to this point where you're able to share your story. And so looking at the story, the process of telling a story, first of all, I love how you describe both pandemics as bookends. And one of the things that are in between these bookends is your working relationship you have with Lenore Hart, who not only published your book, but also helped in the development of it. And the two of you together produced a memoir based on so many twists and turns. It just must have been dizzying at times. Yeah, I had always wanted to be a writer. And the time when I first tested positive, I was actually trying madly to become a, a travel writer. And that all sort of fell to the wayside when I became an activist. So in my work as an activist, I ultimately became a trainer, which is kind of the same as an educator. So that was always sort of in there. And then right after I got very sick, which we talked about earlier, I started writing this memoir, but in fits and starts and and bits and pieces here and there. And then eventually I did an MFA and I wrote this whole big manuscript, which was pretty cohesive, but needed work. I knew it needed work. And I had pitched it here and there. I even had an agent for a while who we basically ended up breaking up because we couldn't sell it because nobody thought HIV was interesting anymore. I was about to go down the path of trying to self-publish it. And I saw Northampton House Press on Instagram of all places 
saying something about they try and find a home for MFA students who can't find a home for their manuscripts anywhere else. And I thought, hmm, that's kind of me. What the heck? I'm going to send it to them. <laughs> I've got nothing to lose. It's not found a home anywhere else. And Lenore read the first 50 pages and said, I, I like this. Send me some more. And then I sent her, or maybe I sent the first 20, she wanted 50. And she ended up saying, send me the whole thing. She read it. They picked it up. The, the requirement was that she would work with me to edit it. And she did the whole line edit, came back in the box, the sort of vision that every writer has of their editor working with you. And you're sort of excited. And then you open it up and you're like, oh, God. She, I read through her edits and it all just made sense. It was like the universe just handed this remarkable woman to me and said, here is your dream editor who is going to read it. And it was perfect because she did not know me. She had not been a teacher she had, of mine. She had been a teacher, but she has not been my professor. So she did not want my story. She did not know me as a writer. So she read it blindly in the sense that she was a first time reader and she could see the errors in the sense of the holes in the writing but also the holes in the story, the holes as a reader, all of those things. And she was able to help me just make it a much stronger manuscript and tell me the places where uh, this sounds interesting, but I need the backstory. You can't drop names like Mother Teresa and not tell us what was going on there. You can't do that. You just can't. You have to tell us the whole story. Or you have to cut it out. Please don't cut it out. Please tell us the whole story. Things like that, that I had read it so many times that I couldn't see it anymore. And so she absolutely helped me shape it into the book that it ended up being. And then because all of this was happening during the pandemic, I said, you know, I could weave in the pandemic part. And she said, yeah, that's an interesting idea. And I said, also, by the way, I had covid I said, oh, yes, you absolutely could be the whole COVID part. And so we worked on that. It was, yes, it was dizzying, but it was, it was dizzying and joyful and absolutely, as they say, it's cliche, but a labor of love. And it is such a better book than it was when she first read it. And I am so grateful that it ended up with her as my editor. So thank you, Lenore Hart, so much for saying yes and for editing it and um, seeing it through. Yeah, we're, we're very glad that you two found each other and this book was a result of it. With a topic as broad as HIV and AIDS and activism, how did you go about finding a way to make your memoir also personal and relatable to a reader since this bridges the gap between nonfiction and journaling? I don't think there's any magic trick. I just told the story and it is a mishmash of different styles and parts. And there are parts that are very much nonfiction, almost journalistic, not journaling, but journalistic. And other parts that are very much sort of journaling and other parts that are travel writing. And they're all sort of thrown in together. And I think that it worked in large part because of the editing. 
But I just told the story, and I think that it also reflects who I am, because as you mentioned, that when I have HIV, I've had COVID, I've had other health issues, like many of us, but I am not just one thing. I am many things. I am a person with HIV, but I'm also a teacher. I am a grandmother. I'm a sister. I'm a travel writer. I'm cat lover. <laughs> I am many things. And so the writing reflects that, I think. And it also reflects who I was at different parts of my life. So it sort of takes you on a journey of those parts of me at those moments. Well, I think that this interview shows that you are many different things. And it sounds like it. all of that went into your story. And we are so happy to have met you. We're so happy to be introduced to all the different Martinas that there are. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. Really, Martina, it has been a joy talking to you. It was a joy reading your book. I will hope that you will keep us informed of what, about what's next in your life. And good luck with everything. With your uh, short but mean motto, I think you can do anything you want to. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us tonight. We welcome your comments and invite you to check out our Wild Women Who Write website. Until next time, keep writing and stay wild.